Welcome to today's edition of the Career 100 Podcast. Your host, Felicia Gopal, founder of collegefundingresource.com, will be interviewing professionals each week that are currently working in one of the top 100 careers for 2011. This series is designed to introduce students to different career options that are in demand and share the path each practitioner has taken to arrive in their current position. We want to expose you to the varied and distinguished careers of our guests and to perhaps inspire you to consider following in their footsteps, or better yet, blaze your own trail. So sit back and relax as Felicia interviews professionals about how they came to be in the top 100 careers. Hi, this is Felicia Gopal. I want to thank everyone for joining us and welcome you to today's edition of the Career 100 podcast. We're going to continue to explore one of the top careers through the eyes of a current practitioner who will be sharing her education and background as a sociologist. As I learned while I was doing research for this interview, a sociology is the scientific study of society. It's a social science which uses various methods of investigation and critical analysis to develop a body of knowledge about human social activity. For many sociologists, the goal is to conduct research which may be applied directly to social policy and welfare, while others focus primarily on refining the theoretical understanding of social processes. The traditional focus of sociology have included social stratification, social class, culture, sociability, religion, law, and deviance. It has been expanded in recent years to include health, medical, military, penal institutions, and even the internet. So with us today is Dr. Roberta Spalter-Roth, who is a PhD, and she's the Director of Research and Development. Yeah, that's with it. <laughs> that's it. All right, great. So along with Dr. Heidi Hartman, Dr. Spalter-Roth was responsible for the earliest research which resulted in the National Family and Medical Leave Act. Unnecessary losses, the cost to Americans of the lack of family and medical leave. So Dr. Spalter-Roth, it is my pleasure to welcome you to the call. Thank you. I'm delighted to participate. Perfect. So, you know, I said a whole mouthful when I was describing what a sociologist does. Could you put it in your own terms to make it perhaps a little bit more accessible than what I have borrowed from the Internet? Right. I think the world is changing rapidly. Sociologists look at what happens to people in that social world, in that changing global world, how are they affected by major social forces? And those can be anything from the current economic crisis to the growth of a fundamentalist religion to you know, race and gender, social movements. So how are individuals and groups of people affected in the sense of what are their daily lives like? How do changes change their daily lives? How do they change their social and economic well-being? How do they affect structures like the family, religion, and work? So we look at social forces and their impact 
on individuals and groups, and we look a lot at inequalities. So are there differences in the treatment and the outcomes for minority groups within different societies? You know, there's now a fair amount of conversation going on about tax cuts for the rich versus the middle class, ideas that the poverty rate may increase. So what are the differences and how do they manifest themselves and what are the causes of differences between different income, education, what we sort of usually call social class? You know, what are the differences? What are the changes? How are they affected by different social forces? Is that better? I think that's a little bit clearer than the Wikipedia explanation of what a sociologist right. yeah. does. Yeah. <laughs> so why don't you just take a couple of minutes to tell us a little bit about how you became a sociologist? I think I became a sociologist because as an undergraduate, I took a sociology course. And that's one of the major reasons people become sociologists, according to studies we've done, is that they take a course and they fall in love with these sociological concepts, which help explain their lives to them. In my own case, it was like I then gained some understanding of why I wasn't accepted in certain social groups in high school. That it wasn't just me and my personality or my looks or the way I dressed, although those were no doubt involved. I mean, you know, people who are more beautiful have higher social status than those who are less beautiful. But that whole way of explaining things just started making a lot of sense to me. It was also when I was an undergraduate, you know, beginnings of the civil rights movement. And so looking at race while I was starting to participate in that movement was very helpful to me. So I think it was for the reasons that currently when we do surveys of senior sociology majors, they love their first courses, they like the concepts, they help them understand their own lives. They help them understand how people behave differently in different economic situations. And those are the reasons they major. For me, the reasons I majored. Then having done that, I started thinking of myself as a sociologist and went on to graduate school. I then worked for 10 years doing mainly social research in what was then the anti-poverty program, in a research center, and then I went back and got a PhD. Great. So you talked about how you came to develop an interest in becoming a sociologist, and you said that it started with a class where you fell in love. And, you know, that's one of the things that I've been finding as I've been interviewing different professionals Oftentimes, it was a person, it was a class, it was an interest that caused them to want to go into the career field that they went into. So let me ask Uh you a follow-up question about what do you like about being a sociologist? What I like being about a sociologist is, well, right now in my job, I do a lot of interesting research, and I still look at differences in terms of gender, in terms of race and ethnicity, in terms of age status, 
and since I do research on the labor market for sociologists, I look at differences between people who become academics and who go into the job market. There's always something, you know, recently I've been looking, using network analysis and looking at, you know, the sort of networks of people that result in different kinds of publications, in uh, different kinds of participation. And so there's always something, you know, new and interesting to learn as the world changes, as society changes, as social processes change as, as institutions change. And it's never dull. There's always kind of a, a new thing that's worth starting to explore and investigate. So with the exploring and investigating, is that something that, you know, somebody who wants to become a sociologist would tend to be somebody who has got a curious mind and really wants to understand how the world works and how systems kind of work? Yes. Now, it's also the case that it's somebody who at least probably learns, beginning in that first sociology course, that explanations that have to do with only them as individuals probably are not the only explanations, that there are these larger social explanations, that their lives are affected not only by their own goals and motives, which themselves tend to depend on, you know, the family they have, the school they went to, their economic status, their race, their gender. But, you know, those sorts of things in turn affect, you know, what happens to them during their lives. And so it's someone who is willing to accept that the reality of that kind of analysis, which is based on all sorts of research and data. So it's also someone who, in fact, is curious and wants to learn how social processes work and the kinds of sophisticated, I don't know, methodological tools that one needs to use in order to answer these questions. That it's not enough to say, well, my brother-in-law says X or he has experienced why, while that's certainly important and part of one's understanding, it's not enough. You know, one wants to interview lots of brother-in-laws, you know, and one wants to then use either surveys or in-depth interviews or data that's already been collected to look at the world of brother-in-laws or men or, you know, whatever the case may be. Got it. So if somebody was interested in becoming a sociologist, is there a suggested path like you would do undergraduate work and then... You would do undergraduate work, you know, and there are occupations that you could go into after being a sociology major and getting your baccalaureate degree. And again, that's something we study here at ASA. And what we found is that the major things that undergraduate sociologists do is tend to work in nonprofits, and they tend to do things like run various kinds of programs for, I don't know, for immigrants, for battered women, 
for underprivileged children. They tend to be involved in programs designed to make people's lives better. They either manage those programs, they do research in those programs, they work as caseworkers in those kinds of programs. So that's kind of a, a major thing that undergraduates do, you know, after they graduate with a baccalaureate degree. Others do things, work in for-profit companies, and they apply their sort of sociological survey research skills to doing marketing analysis, finding out why people buy things they do, what are their likes, what are their dislikes, how does that vary by region of the country, by family income, by gender, by race, by ethnicity, by whether or not they have children. So that's another career avenue. You know, people can do work after a baccalaureate degree. Then a fair number of people go and get master's degrees. And when they get master's degrees, as part of those programs, they tend to learn more sophisticated research and analytic skills. And the jobs that they get, also they get a fair number of jobs in nonprofits, but they tend to have more of a research base okay. than jobs for undergraduates. Then there are people who go straight through, or like myself, they work for a while and go back to getting PhDs. And the majority of PhDs do become faculty members, become academics. A larger portion are now working in sort of independent research think tanks that exist often in relation to a university. Some of them are nonprofits. We also have maybe 20% or so of PhDs who work outside of the ivory tower, as one might call it, and work for the federal government. State governments do a lot of research work and a survey we've done of, of non-academics or people who work in research and policy and other applied fields feel as if they still use the sociological concepts that they learn, like study legal systems around the world. They study a wide variety of topics in which they use both their methodological skills and their conceptual skills. Okay. So what I heard you say is when people graduate with a baccalaureate degree, they tend to go into fields where they're going to basically be taking the education that they've learned and applying it to helping people. The second stage of that is if they were going for master's, then they're often doing a lot of research-based work. And then the final piece to that was if they were going and getting a PhD, then they tend to be doing a lot more research inside of maybe the federal government or think tanks or those sorts of institutions. Did I capture that? Right. Although the largest group of people with PhDs are faculty members. They become teachers and researchers. You know, that tends to be a major goal for PhDs is to become engaged in the academic life, 
Although, as I say, there's a portion that doesn't do get engaged in that life and has a life outside the academy, and that often entails doing both research and conceptual work on topics that are of more interest for policy. Got it. So one of the things that you said that surprised me, because when I think of a sociologist, I think of it in the way that you described it as people who are out there helping people. I was surprised that there was also an application or one of the ways that people could use their sociology degree is inside of for-profit organizations where they're helping with marketing. And it makes a lot of sense, but it's not a place that I would have normally thought of Right, and see, and that depends on, I mean, like a school like Hunter at Queens College, which are part of the City College of New York system, you know, there's huge demand for people who do marketing research in New York City, where lots of advertising companies are located, and they have special programs. So that part of both either your undergraduate degree and your master's degree train you to use your research skills for that purpose. So in different parts of the country, in different kinds of cities, that there's more of an orientation, somewhat different ways of applying sociology. Well, that makes sense. We also have sociologists who start really caring about the use of computers and do that, but still often within more applied research, helping kinds of organizations and institutions. So when you use the word applied, you mean what? You know, we use the term when we're talking about work that's not academic, that is basically, again, designed to help people, but also designed to, in terms of things like marketing research, helping to develop products or sell products, and that it's the application of sociological concepts and sociological research tools. For example, if you are working with marketing, again, marketing appeals to segments of the population, what we might call strata, what they call segments. But if you understand social difference and inequality and social stratification, it's real easy to transfer that into research on segments of the population and who buys what, who wants what, so that you can apply sociological concepts and sociological methods to work in different kinds of organizations. I understand. Thank you. So let me ask you, is there a career structure in the field of sociology? I mean, you know, I've worked as a financial planner for the last 18 years, and so there's kind of a career structure. You start at one level, you can progress to another level. Could you take a couple minutes to talk about the career structure as a sociologist, or would it depend upon the organization which you are working in? It'll depend both on the organization and the level of your degree. And so when I was working, and as a sociologist say, this is anecdotal based on a great deal of research. After my master's, I started doing 
research in nonprofit organizations, it became clear to me. I mean, I did very interesting work, but it became clear to me that if I wanted to run my own projects, I would need a Ph.D. Okay. So I went back to school and got a Ph.D. So I think that two things are engaged, I mean, involved here, is that within different kinds of organizations, you can progress Like my first job, I moved from being a research assistant to a research associate. But then to become a project director, I needed to go back to school. So it's not, you know, a tightly defined career structure. And it is both organizational dependent and degree dependent. Okay. So what sorts of changes are going on in your industry that make being a sociologist one of the top 100 careers? Well, sorts of changes going on within the academy and within other social institutions, and that sociologists are the people who tend to study change and look at change. So in general, sociologists, in fact, look at all kinds of changes Within the academy, a major kind of change is the Internet. And so the growth of studies of how people use the Internet, how social groups are created via the Internet, the whole issue of social networks I mean, is used often for very practical purposes, like are there terrorist networks and how do you find that out? I mean, we're doing some work right now. Are there networks of researchers and teachers who tend to use certain kinds of materials rather than others? And how would you get broader dissemination using different kinds of networks? So that's the thing we're working on right now. I mean, there are sociologists have done research suggesting that people who are heavier tend to have friends and family members who are heavier, that they have networks, and people who smoke are in smoker networks. And some of the early you know, research on drug addicts, that you were in a particular kind of social network where people you know, used and distributed drugs. So that whole issue has become kind of major issue, sometimes done through the internet, sometimes through face-to-face interactions, and that sociologists are in the forefront of studying that. So there are all kinds of social changes going on. I mean, the growth of fundamentalism, both here in the United States, the growth of the Tea Party. We have numbers of people doing research on that. Uh, I run a program where we give small grants to people. We now have numbers of people who are interested in that topic and how it will play itself out during elections, how the growth of whether it's sort of fundamentalist Islam or more moderate Islam and why and how. I mean, we have a program funded by the National Science Foundation, a program for postdoctorals where they're looking at the impact of the economic crisis. And some fascinating research has come out of there about how do people who don't have jobs and don't have what appears to be much of a future, how do they define being an adult? 
Normal mm. ways of defining adulthood is this sort of permanent job, you know, marriage and family. That is much less the case. People are less likely to have steady lifetime jobs. People marry later or don't marry at all. And so looking at issues like how do these changes come about? Why are these changes? You know, are important things for sociologists to look like, and often they can affect policy decisions. Sorry, did that answer that question? I wasn't sure. I sort of got off on a riff. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. You know, let me ask you kind of a follow-up question to that. You talked about the changes and the changes being that there's all these societal changes that are going on, like the Internet, and you've got sociologists who are basically studying the effects of that on elections, on policy, on various different things. So the follow-up question to that from my perspective is, why do you think that being a sociologist is on the list of the top 100 careers? Well, I guess it relates to that. You know, we're the people who do that. And in a world that's currently facing major social changes, you know, the market just went up 200 points today because the European countries are working out a bailout. Yes, they went down because people were nervous about that. Or so people who talk about why did the market go up and down say, you know, is that really what's going on? Sociologists look a little deeper than journalists tend to look. As we started to say at the beginning, there's a kind of curiosity about how things work. That's what we do. That's what makes a sociological career exciting. Whether you're doing research on that, you're advising policy people, you're sort of using your conceptual understanding to help people in daily lives. We had a sociologist when all the cotton mills started leaving North Carolina who was engaged in studying, I guess, a small-scale social movement that went to Washington, D.C. to talk about their situation. She was there with them. What could be more exciting? Yes, what could be more exciting? So there's a natural curiosity or a curiosity about how the world works that really seems to permeate the types of things that sociologists research, study, and report on. So let me ask you, do you have any final thoughts, anything that you want to share with someone who is considering a career as a sociologist? (laughs) Don't give up. (laughs) I mean, you should be this person who does want to understand. And sometimes that happens after you're in the class and you say, oh, my, and that you have to take seriously the fact that we are a scientific discipline and that we use research methods. We work very carefully, even though a fair number of undergraduate majors want to change society, our notion is that you don't change society without some knowledge. And to gain that knowledge, you have to either do studies, read studies, you have to have you know, a broader understanding than just a desire to help. Okay. All right. Well, I think you've shared some great information about being a sociologist. 
So if somebody wanted some additional information from you, how would they get in contact with you? Well, the first thing they would do is they would go to the American Sociological Association website where there are all kinds of things you can download, you can look at about a sociological career. I have my own webpage called Research on Sociology, which tells you a great deal about the profession based on studies that we've done. There's also a thing on teaching and with both materials for undergraduates called the 21st Century Sociology Career for Undergraduates. Our website has a great deal of information, and that's the first place I would send people. It's www.asanetoneword.org. And I think a great many questions can be answered that way so that every single person with a question doesn't have to, you know, ask us individually, but they can see kind of what's out there. And I don't really want to happen is that people, undergraduates ask me to do their research for them or to send them where they could look to do research or what do I know about teen pregnancy? And I don't really do that. So that's my only hesitancy in giving out, you know, my email address. Usually, though, if people go to the website, we have a whole series of research briefs based on our studies, including all the stuff on baccalaureate careers that you can download. They have our names on them. (laughs) And so you could actually end up emailing. You know, I guess I'd prefer to do it that way, that that's the first gate. And then beyond that, you can really find out who we are and then get in touch. Well, I think that's fair enough. You know, one of the things and one of the reasons why I put together this particular series is because I believe that students who have a better understanding of the career that they're considering going into have a better opportunity to have a better outcome going through it. They have an understanding of what it takes to be a sociologist and what sorts of opportunities, what sorts of career fields, what sorts of doors might be open, and really what it's all about. Because oftentimes I think students don't have a really good idea of what the career is going to be about until they start to get into it. I agree with you, and that's why we also produce one of our hot sellers, so to speak, that the research department at ASA produces, something called Launching Majors into satisfying careers so that we have been trying to work with faculty members in sociology departments and give them information about how they can help their majors move into careers without themselves becoming, you know, nothing but career counselors. And so we have all kinds of information in there that faculty can use to help their students in the the publication on 21st century research careers. There's all kinds of information about what the students should be doing. So exactly as you say, people need to have this understanding. Let me just go to our website for a second. 
Great. So we have two things that I think will be especially important. These are on the top nav bar of our website. One is research on sociology, and the other is teaching slash learning. And I think those are two places where both sociologists at all levels can find information, from the undergraduate through already teaching faculty members. I do something on faculty salaries every year. I do something on the job market for PhDs every year. We do this longitudinal survey of what happens to sociology baccalaureates. So we do a lot of work that, you know, of use to people. And I think it's great we also have Twitters and all those other things, all of which information is available on this website. All right, perfect. So I encourage my listeners to keep coming back to listen to more of our Career 100 series. We're fortunate to have quality guests like Dr. Spalter Roth, who have given their time to expose America's youth to another in-demand career option to consider for your future career goals. Dr. Salter Roth, I'd like to thank you for joining me today and sharing why you believe being a sociologist is one of the top 100 careers, as well as your background and the educational requirements of the field. Well, I was pleased to do that. I always get excited talking about sociology. I can hear that in your voice, and I can hear that in the enthusiasm with which you shared the information today. All right. Well, again, thank you, and get in touch, and I look forward to hearing. All right. And I want to thank all of my listeners for joining us today, and I hope that you will join me again for the next installment of the Career 100 podcast. Thank you for listening to today's edition of the Career 100 podcast. We hope you'll join us again for our next podcast, where we'll continue to interview experts in the top 100 careers for 2011, giving you the insider's view of their chosen profession. If you'd like more information about planning and saving for college and to instantly download your free copy of College Funding Resources Report, Five Strategies That Parents Need to Start Using Today to Cut Their College Costs Tomorrow, visit www.collegefundingresource.com. That's www.collegefundingresource.com. This is Kathy Davis for the Career 100 Podcast.